work can often seem like or be seen as a four-letter word. Now, I understand that work is actually a four-letter word, but you know what I mean. Sometimes when we talk about work, it leaves a bad taste in our mouths. In fact, I've heard people talk about the idea of work and work itself as being a result of the fall. And that because of sin, that's why we have to work. And then one day Christ is going to come back and make everything new and we won't have to work anymore. But the problem with that is the commandment to be people who work predates the fall in the Bible. That as long as there have been people inside of Scripture, there's been a commandment to work and to tend the garden and to care for the earth and to be people of action. And even when we look at the book of Isaiah, when he talks about the new heaven and the new earth, we see that people are going to take their swords and beat them into plowshares and there's still going to be work and purpose to be done, except it'll be without all the stain and brokenness of sin and the fall that causes it to be hard and painful. But in the same way, if you start talking about works with an S in the Christian context, people can get a little uneasy. Because we know that salvation is by grace through faith and that it's not based on works lest anyone should boast. And so when we start talking about Christian works, we can start to get really easy saying, oh, that starts to sound a lot like legalism. Last week, we saw James teach us that our religious actions mean very little, if not nothing, if our internal faith doesn't match up. That it doesn't matter how many things that we do and how many religious actions and religious boxes we're able to check if we don't have this faith inside of us that is compassionate and confessional and humble and merciful. If it's not a faith that is geared towards Christ and reflecting Christ, then the things that we do are of very little value. But in the same way today, we're going to see that faith without works is dead. And that religious thought without religious action is worthless. And we're going to continue seeing James teach us this importance on having a religion that is true based on the way that God teaches us to be religious and a religion that is complete, matching our faith in Christ with the works that honor and glorify him. And so we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 this morning. And this is the word of God. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word as we do week after week. And we also thank you that you have called us to work because that is a reminder that you've called us to a purpose, that our lives have meaning and that we have value in in expanding and growing your kingdom here in this world. Father, I pray that you teach us to understand the link between faith and works. That we would understand that it's faith that saves us by your grace. But that we can't have genuine faith unless it goes to work. And so, Father, we just pray that you help us to see that clearly as we look at your word this morning and that you would send us out here eager to do the work that you've called us to do and to be truly religious as you have called us to be religious in Christ in the truest sense of that word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have you guys seen those LifeLock commercials? I think they're really great. So if you haven't, here's what happens. There's a couple of them, and they are just really delightful to me. So in one, there's some kind of a a robbery going on. It's either in a bank or at a retail store. And so there's a robbery going on, and all the people are down on their faces, and they're really scared, and there's a security, what looks like a security guard, standing in the middle of the floor. And they look at him from the floor, and they say, hey, you're a security guard. Do something about this. And he says, well... I'm actually not a security guard. I'm a security monitor. I'm just here to tell you if there's a crime, there is a crime. And then the commercial ends. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. There's another one with a dentist. And so there's a man in a chair. There's a dentist and his assistant standing there doing all the work and looking into this person's mouth. And they make a really horrified noise, the kind of noise that you don't want to hear a dentist make. And they say, oh, man. And the guy with all his stuff in his mouth is like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's going to happen? He says, man, you've got a lot of, a lot of cavities here. He says, oh, Doc, can you fix them? He says, well, I'm actually a dental monitor, not a dentist. And so I'm just here to tell you if you have cavities. And yep, you have cavities. And he takes off his gloves and he walks away. And the whole point of those commercials is what good is a security monitor? What good would a dental monitor be if they're not going to fix the problem? And it's never good when you feel like you have to ask how good something is or what value something has, especially when it's our faith. But that's where James starts here in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? And then he follows it up with a question that's even more startling. He says, can that faith save him? James here is calling our attention to a fundamental, foundational question in the Christian life. What is faith? What does it mean to have faith? And is faith without works really faith at all? 
And now maybe we recoil from that question a little bit because it, it hurts to have something so dear and so important to us challenged like what it means to have faith because all of us would probably like to say that we have faith, but in order to help us understand a little deeper what's going on and to maybe help us to see the foolishness of faith without works, James gives us an illustration to show us how faith simply cannot be passive. And so in verse 15 and 16, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? James says, if somebody comes in and they're coming out of the cold rain and they haven't had anything to eat in several days and they say, I'm so cold and I'm so hungry, but instead of offering them something to eat or a blanket to warm them with, we just say, you know what? Go think warm thoughts. Go think full thoughts and be okay. And then we send them out on the way. That clearly is of no good at all. I do wonder how often we're guilty of that exact thing in our lives. I wonder how often I'm guilty of that exact thing in my life. But maybe in the place of saying be warmed or be filled, maybe I throw in something that sounds a little more spiritual like I'll be sure to pray for you and then send someone along on their way without doing anything at all and sometimes without even giving it a second thought. But what good is that? What good is it to have a faith that believes that we're called to see hungry people fed if we aren't willing to feed the hungry? What good is it if we believe that we have a faith that calls for widows and orphans to be cared for, as we looked at a few weeks ago, if we aren't willing to, in fact, care for widows and orphans? What good is it to have a faith that believes that people should hear the gospel if we aren't willing to go out and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ? And of course, it's no good at all. You see, James is teaching us here that faith without works is not faith at all. And we may be able to dress it up in religious language and use all the right words, and we can do that if we want, but all we'll have left is something that looks valuable, but is in fact incomplete and worthless. Faith and works are two things that are inextricably linked and can't be pulled apart, and if we do, we no longer have either one. I was listening to a podcast uh, about a week and a half ago or something. And it was an old episode of a podcast called Planet Money where they talk about just economical issues and things like that. But this one was about Bitcoin. And I don't know a whole lot about Bitcoin, so I was curious about things. And they were, they're telling some Bitcoin horror stories. So if you don't know what Bitcoin is, to the best of my knowledge, Bitcoin is a digital currency and it happens to be skyrocketing in value right now to where things that used to be worth pennies are now worth tens of thousands of dollars per unit. And so I listened to one, the first story is, is quite a doozy. There was a man who, when people were buying Bitcoin at the beginning, they had no real understanding that it would ever be worth anything. So they were buying these Bitcoins for just pennies at a time. And so there was a man who had a lot of Bitcoin, but they kind of just sat there unused and, and didn't really increase in value for a while. And so he ended up throwing away the hard drive that those Bitcoins were on. And then they started to rise in value to where his Bitcoins were worth a few million dollars. And they started to rise in value to where his Bitcoin was worth over a hundred million dollars. And he threw it away. 
And so logically, this guy goes and tries to figure out what landfill this this hard drive might be in and finds himself digging through a landfill trying to find this Bitcoin because this is not just life-changing money. This is generation-changing money, and he can't find it anywhere, and it's all completely gone. Now, the second story they told was a little less overwhelming, but still hard nonetheless. There was a man they were actually interviewing and kind of walked through this entire process with him. And he knew that early on somebody had given him some Bitcoin, not much, but enough to where he thought it might be worth maybe ten to fifteen thousand dollars, which not a hundred million, but not something. I don't think anybody's turning that down. And so he remembered he had these and he thought it was in a hard drive in his attic because I guess this guy just had a lot of hard drives in his attic. I don't really know what that life is like, but there were hard drives in his attic. So he went up and tried to find the old computer that had this Bitcoin on it and he finds a computer and in it there's a folder that says Bitcoin and he's thinking, all right, sweet. And so he opens it up. But apparently with these Bitcoin, there was a code attached to the Bitcoin that you had to have and it was randomly generated and could never be recovered. And so he had the Bitcoin sitting on his computer, but he didn't have the code. And without that code, that Bitcoin was worthless. Couldn't be opened, couldn't be used, couldn't be sold, had absolutely no value. He had something that had the appearance of value, but because it wasn't complete, had no value at all. And in the same way, a faith that doesn't have works may look valuable, but is completely worthless, according to James. He says that it's as good as dead. And dead faith isn't saving faith. And what we find when we talk about the Gospel is that true saving faith is a faith that compels us to move. It's a faith that compels us to get up and to go and to serve and to sing and to pray and to confess and to do all of the things that we're called to do. A true faith in Christ is active because we were saved by a God who was not passive. We were saved by a God who so loved the world that He didn't sit back and love us from afar, but we serve a God who loved us so much that He gave His one and only Son. That Jesus came into the world to actively save us, to meet us where we were, and to not only live life, but to, as Lydia said, to become obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because we have an active Savior who actively saves us by His grace, our faith should reflect that as well. We were not saved by a passive God, and so because of that, we are not saved to a passive faith, and so we need to remember that our faith has to work, or it's not really faith at all. Now James continues to talk about what this faith means. And what James says next kind of reminded me of a conversation that Adam and I had a few weeks ago. So Adam is colorblind. And that's a fun fact to know about somebody that's on staff here. Now, you know, we could put it in his bio on the website. I'm not sure that's a thing that you just broadcast. We could put it on a billboard. <laughs> I come to our church with a colorblind pastor. But Adam was preaching a few weeks ago, and this little pack that has the microphone on it has a red light and a green light. When it's red, the box is muted, and when it's green, the box is on, and you can speak in the microphone, and there's sound. And so we were just kind of talking about how that all works. And then Adam asked me which one is which because he can't tell the difference between red and green. 
And I have some color issues. I can't see reds in certain shades of things. And so purples and blues kind of look the same. And browns and reds a lot of times look the same. But when Adam looks at these two but these two lights, they are the same color to him. And so I wanted to know what that means. And so I was asking follow-up questions. And so I started asking questions like, well, do you see it as red and green? And then I realized that's not a question that can be answered. I was like, well, do you see it as gray? And then I also realized that's probably not a question to be answered. And the more I started trying to ask questions, the more frustrated I got because I remembered that one of the most impossible things in the world is to try to explain to somebody a color. Because it's entirely possible that when I look at those chairs, I see a certain shade of red and maybe we call those chairs, all of us, the same color. But what if we see them differently? And it's very confusing and it's very strange. And so if you were trying to describe to someone the color blue, that's not a thing that you can do because it is difficult, if not impossible, to show someone, especially with your words, an abstract concept. And a lot of times we can think of faith is an abstract concept of something that is, is hard to define and hard to put our fingers on. And it's just this kind of thing that exists somewhere in our spirit or in the air, or in the atmosphere, that it's there, but we don't really know what it is. But that's not really how the Bible describes faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says that faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen or the evidence and substance of the things that we hope for and see. The Bible tells us that faith is something tangible. Faith is something real. And if faith is tangible, then that means that faith is something that can be put on display and something that can be shown. And with that in mind, James issues a challenge. In verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James isn't offering this contest as a way to say who has better faith. He's not saying, let's put this on display so that you can show me how your faith is and then I'll show you how my faith is. James is teaching us by this example that this is what real faith is. That if you really have faith, you're going to be able to show that faith. And the only way that you can show that faith is through works. And then he continues on in verse 19 saying, you believe that God is one, you do well. There's that phrase again. The second time James says it, now it's starting to feel a little patronizing. Because remember last week, James says, you love your neighbor as yourself and you fulfill the royal law by doing that, so you're doing well. But if you show partiality or, or discrimination, then you are not following the law the way that it's supposed to be. And here James is doing that to us again. He says, okay, so you believe there's a God. And you believe that God is one the way that Deuteronomy 6.4 teaches us to believe that God is one. He says, if you believe that about God, then good job. You do well. And then this goes real sideways on us really quickly because he says, and it's never good when people throw demons into the analogy. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. James is teaching us here that belief and faith are not necessarily synonymous. 
Because he says, even the demons believe in God. They don't really have much of an option there. But that's not saving faith. In fact, their belief in God causes them to shudder because they don't have that saving faith. And we need to recognize that belief can masquerade itself as faith, I think especially inside the American South, but you can't show belief without faith. Belief can be passive, but faith cannot. My whole life, anytime somebody talked about faith or was teaching on faith, there was always some kind of an example that involved a chair. So I'll use an example that involved a chair, right? I could believe that were I to walk out there and stand on one of those chairs, that that chair would hold me up. I have experience to know that that's true. And so there's nothing in my mind that keeps me from thinking that that's true. And so I can believe that that's true, but I don't ever have to do anything with that belief. But to have faith that that chair would hold me, I would need to put that into practice. And that faith is something that could be expressed easily by stepping out and standing on one of those chairs. But just in case we miss it, James keeps going with this. And in verse 20, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? He's being so harsh. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he gives us two examples of what genuine faith looks like. He tells us about Abraham, and he tells us about Rahab. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And then he continues on to say that in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out on another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And we're going to talk about Abraham and Rahab in detail over the next couple weeks as we move into the new space and in the new building. We'll start with looking at these case studies of faith in Abraham and in Rahab. But James says, remember Abraham, he believed that Isaac was the promise that God had given him so many years before and that he was the one that God was going to start initiating all these amazing things that he promised Abraham. And then God called Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And Abraham thought, well, he's God. So there's got to be something to this. And God is going to provide one way or the other. And he starts to lead Abraham up or lead Isaac up the hill. And it says that that faith that was willing to risk everything to follow God and to trust God in all situations was counted to him as righteousness. And that his faith was completed by his works and active alongside his works. Abraham didn't just believe that God had the power to raise the dead if necessary. Abraham was willing to put that faith into action and to trust God. In the same way, Rahab didn't simply believe in some God that she had heard of from afar, but she had enough faith to fear God more than fearing her own government and risking her life to save God's people. And in both of those instances, their faith that was both belief and action united as one was counted to them as righteousness. 
And they're set up for our examples of what it looks like to have a faith that works. And then in verse 26, he drops this weight saying, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's no life to our faith if our faith doesn't work. Since we're going to talk about Abraham and Rahab over the next couple weeks, I wanted to give one more example of a story that I heard this week about faith put into action. I told you a couple weeks ago that I am listening to a book on plagues. And in this book, there's an entire chapter on leprosy. And leprosy throughout history has been a horrifying disease. And all cultures that have experienced leprosy have have been terrified of, of what that means because it's a disease that often manifests itself in a very physical way. And in 1865, in Hawaii, the marshal of the Hawaiian Islands issued the Act to Prevent the Spread of Leprosy. And basically, if we want to get past all the legal terminology, what this means is that anyone in the Hawaiian Islands that had the disease of leprosy was going to be rounded up and sent to an island by themselves. This island was a place called Malakai. And as these people were rounded up and sent to Malakai, they were expected to go over there and basically start life from the ground up, to build their own buildings, to plant their own gardens. And here's the problem. Leprosy often causes very difficult physical ailments, people losing digits and limbs and not having the ability to do that kind of work. On top of that, the hospitals and doctors that were over there, the doctors and the nurses were very horrified at catching that disease themselves. And so there were very few doctors or nurses even on the island, but the ones that were there often refused to be anywhere near the people that had the disease. They would sometimes change bandages with, with sticks to keep themselves away or often not even come near the people with the disease. And so there was no sense of any sort of broader community. And those feelings of isolation and feelings of failure on not being able to be self-sufficient and the lack of contact from anyone outside of their community began to bring that whole community in Malachi to a very low place. Their morale dropped to the floor. They began to turn to excessive alcoholism and and the moral fiber of the island began to fall apart because these people had no hope. About 25 years before this proclamation, in Belgium, a man named Joseph de Wooster was born. Joseph was young and wild and a little bit mischievous growing up, but also was somebody from a very early age who was compassionate and loved to care for other people. In 1858, Joseph stated a desire to begin ministry, and he wanted to enter the priesthood and become a missionary to America, to North America, to be a missionary to the Native American people. But when he went to get into school to become a priest, he was initially rejected because he just didn't fit the mold. He wasn't smart enough. He was ignorant of most things. He didn't know much Latin. And also he was kind of a little wild and a little rambunctious, even as he was entering into early adulthood. But he had a brother who was already a priest and who was able to pull some strings. And so they let Joseph in as a choir brother. 
which is basically someone who had no hope of ever becoming a priest, but was able to do some work around the seminary and to learn some things and to, to contribute to the work of ministry. And so as he entered in as a choir brother, he accepted the name Brother Damien. But as he was there, now named Damien, he began to excel in his studies. And after a year of studying Latin, was as strong as a fifth-year Latin student and began to be incredibly devoted to the point where he was hard to notice and finally was accepted to begin training for the priesthood. Around that time, his brother was given a call to go to Hawaii. But he became very sick. And so they decided to send Damien in his place. And so Damien goes to Hawaii. And he begins, his principal responsibility is to care for the sick. And during this time, the people of Malachi started communicating to anyone who would listen that they needed a priest. They needed somebody who could come in and give some sort of balance to everything that was going on. And so Damien offered his services, and he was initially on a team of three people. And they were going to rotate. So Damien would go first. He would stay there for three months. And then he would come back and another priest would go for three months. And they would do these three-month tours. Damien left for his first three-month tour and was there for 15 years. Damien was given extreme instructions on how he should conduct himself. He was not supposed to touch any of the people with the disease. He was not supposed to receive any gifts from anyone on the island. He was never to eat with anyone. He was never to share any of his food with anyone. Basically, he was there to give last rites when somebody died. But Damien gets off the plane, and immediately he's met by someone from the island with the disease who offers him fruit. And Damien takes it, and he eats it. And Damien begins to do incredible things on the island of Malachi. When he was there, he began to build buildings. But not only that, but he recruited the people that were there, the people with leprosy, to come alongside of him and to do the work. And so they began to work the land, and he taught them how to farm, and he taught them how to build buildings. He taught them how to work around their disabilities to be able to accomplish these things. He began to invite them into the work and the life and the ministry of the church, not only caring for one another, but he also did things like instituting a, a church choir. Even though several of them had lost the ability to make noise that sounded pleasant at all, he gave them the ability to sing. He recruited people and taught them how to play the organ. Some people with only one hand, and so people would sit together at the organ and play and work together. And he developed this sense of community. He began visiting their homes and eating dinner with them. He would change their, their rotting and diseased bandages with his own hands. He would share his own meals with the people because he loved them. One thing that he did that seems like he probably this might have been a step too far, but he would even share his pipe with the people, which seems very unsanitary and probably could have shown his love without going that one step further. But he was doing this incredible work. And the people were, were changed. The entire island was changed. People that came to see what was going on there were amazed at the transformation that would happen. And the people would say, this is because of the work that Father Damien is doing here because he loves us and he cares for us. One day, he was cooking on his stove and he spilled some water on his foot. 
And one of the symptoms of leprosy is that you, you can't feel some of your extremities. And that's where the, the difficulties come from. That's where the, the loss of limbs begins to come from. Not because of the disease itself, but because you can't feel when you get a cut or when you have an injury. And so that's where infection begins to start. And because of his work, because of what he was doing, sharing his life with, with the people, but also because he was doing hard work that opened himself up to injury and to cuts and bruises, it really was only a matter of time. And when he spilled the water on his foot, he realized that he didn't feel it. And he understood that he had contracted the disease as well. Now, Father Damien, when he would preach his sermons to the church, Week after week, he would stand before his congregation and he would say, my fellow believers, and then he would begin his sermon. That Sunday, he stood before his congregation and he said, my fellow lepers. And he cared for those people, even though he was given the opportunity to go back to Honolulu and receive care. He stayed and he loved and he worked with his people because his faith compelled him. This was his ministry in life. And even today on the island of Malachi, there is, a, there is a monument to Father Damien. And inscribed on that monument, it says, No greater love has a man for his friend than this, that he would lay down his life. He had a faith in Christ that compelled him to go and to work on behalf of those in need. Now, please don't hear me as saying that you have to be Father Damien to show your faith. Not all of us are called to Malachi. Not all of us are called to that kind of ministry. But while we don't have to be Father Damien to show our faith, we do have to show our faith. In whatever way God is calling us and leading us to do that. Our religious pursuit of Christ is supposed to be a complete, holistic sort of thing. And faith without works is not complete. And as James tells us, it's really not faith at all. We are saved by a God who didn't love passively and Christ did not die to give us a passive faith, but the kind of faith that makes us alive in Christ. And because he's given us this new spiritual life, we should allow that life to walk and to move and to love and to serve and to speak. We need to show the world around us our faith in a way that is undeniable. We need to live out our beliefs through our religious actions that are complete and pure by a faith that is set in motion by and completed by our works. Our works have to be inspired by our faith and our faith has to be put to practice by our works and the two things can't be separated. And we do this by not only hearing the word of God, but doing it. To not allow the Word of God to be passive on our hearts, but to put it in practice in everything that we do. We do this by answering the call to put our religion's worth into perspective by going and to care for those who are in need. To care for the widows and the orphans and to love our neighbors as ourselves. To keep our churches as places that reflect the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And to be sure that our actions are always motivated out of a place of love for Christ and love for our neighbor. Being sure that our faith and our religion is always confessional and humble and merciful. It should be our desire to be sure that our Christianity, as the Bible teaches us to be Christians, is complete from the inside out hearing the gospel, knowing the gospel, 
and then living the gospel every opportunity that we get. And so let's be praying, not only individually, but as a church, that God would show us the places where we can put our faith into action. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the public square, wherever God leads us, let's ask that He would teach us to be the kind of people who don't simply say that we have faith because we believe in a God somewhere, but that because we believe in a God who came to us and gave everything for us, that we have a faith that inspires us to action and inspires us to work in a way that shows the world around us the saving faith that comes from Christ crucified and raised again. So let's be people who not only believe, who not only have faith, but who work and love and serve in everything that we do 